Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we just hosted our most recent conference uh, last week in the Bahamas, our guest today was a, a fantastic speaker and his firm, a partner on that event. But our goal at those conferences is the same as our goal here, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you the latest episode of the Salt Crypto Show, sponsored by FTX. Uh, today's guest is Troy Sue. He's the CEO of Swim Protocol which is a DeFi protocol bridging the multi-chain landscape with user adoption and protocol integration in mind. Uh, Troy was previously a trader at Alameda Research, joining the firm in 2018. And prior to his time at Alameda, Troy was a trader on uh, SIG's fixed income desk, where he designed their municipal bond algorithmic strategy. Uh, he graduated from UC Berkeley with a degree in engineering mathematics and statistics and a minor in electrical engineering computer science obviously way smarter than I am. I graduated with a mere finance degree, but Troy, great to have you on. Uh, welcome to the show. The way we like to start things off is just to give people a little bit more about your background. So I talked a little bit about your uh, education and professional background, but what was the path uh, that really led you to study uh, you know, electrical engineering and mathematics that ultimately led you into crypto? Yeah. Uh I guess uh, in school, I was really interested in AI and machine learning. So kind of the natural intersection between computer science, stats, and uh, uh, mathematics. And those are the classes I focused on and kind of just picked my major to take those classes. Um, after that, kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but it sounded like a lot of smart people were in quantitative finance. So kind of uh, applied and found myself in quantitative finance as a quant as SIG. Uh, then, yeah, crypto kind of uh, exploded in 2017, as you guys know, and that's kind of when I hopped in and uh, joined Alameda. And Troy, what was sort of your eureka moment uh, when you got enthusiastic about crypto and how and when did you arrive at that eureka moment? You know, Sam Bankman-Fried talked in the Bahamas about how he didn't begin his journey into crypto as as a you know Bitcoin evangelist or somebody uh, who who loved Bitcoin from a libertarian point of view like a lot of people do, but he more came at it as somebody who, who enjoyed exploiting inefficiencies in financial markets, building better financial markets and exchanges, and then later on sort of developed a, a better appreciation for the value of Bitcoin and decentralized finance. But for you, how did you come into digital assets? When did you come into digital assets? And what was that eureka moment for you? Yeah, so I think uh, there's probably two different eureka moments. The first one was uh, when I left traditional finance in 2017. And for that, I, I guess the mi mindset I had was uh, as, as a young person in, in your early 20s, you should probably hone the skill set that's, that's most suited for your talents and find where in the world things are growing the fastest and throw yourself into that direction. And so in 2017, Bitcoin kind of blew up. It wasn't super adopted yet. There was still, it was still kind of, I uh, didn't have the best of connotations. And I just thought, you know, here's a chance that this thing 
is uh, at the very least a brand new asset class that's about to emerge. And if it does take off uh, so much more than that. So that's actually what got me in is seeing it as financial markets as a new asset class to trade. And then the second Eureka moment was kind of the explosion of DeFi in 2020. So more than just kind of financial data that I was looking at from day to day, but actually looking at smart contracts, uh, watching all this capital pour onto chain that was uh, you know, governed by by pieces of code. Uh, and that that was super powerful watching kind of TV off on DeFi grow from five million to to many billions. Right. And when you were thinking about how you wanted to enter the space and the problem that you wanted to solve for, could you talk a little bit more about what Swim Protocol is and the the problem that you are looking to solve for? Yeah. Um, so when we started Swim Protocol, uh, the DeFi landscape was was much different than it is today. At that time, about 75% of it was on ETH, and a lot of it was desperately trying to get out, uh, mostly because transaction costs were super high, uh, things were slow. You could see that Binance Smart Chain was the first one to move on that, uh, taking about 25% of the space, and less than 1% of that was on Solana. Um, and that just called for just a need to move assets around these different chains that blockchains just weren't built for. They were built for just uh, transactions on that single chain. And so that's basically what started us, is to basically enable this mobility uh, across all different kinds of chains to promote growth in the same way that all protocols on ETH can compose with each other and promote each other. Right. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about the idea that it's going to be a multi-chain future, that, that we're going to have multiple chains that coexist alongside of each other. I think you probably support that notion, given that you're building a solution to enable liquidity uh, across multiple chains. Why do you think we're going to have a multi-chain future versus sort of a winner-takes-all uh, type of outcome within the decentralized finance uh, layer one blockchain space? Yeah, certainly. Mostly, I think for a few reasons. The first one is you can see kind of the technical design choices that different L1s are taking. And each of those uh, come out of trade-offs for various things. Uh, I think the most obvious one is Solana and the way that it's designed its blockchain to make everything as parallel as possible really promotes fast transactions. And naturally so, you can see most of the projects on Solana involve kind of high frequency trading. Uh, various other uh, L1s have designed various things like Avalanche uh, with its pair, with its multiple subnets, and in various gaming things, hopping on each and one of those. Uh, basically, for a blockchain to uh, reach uh, the ultimate usage profile uh, for a certain kind of tech, it has to make trade-offs uh, for depending on what kind of tech gets built on that. And so as these L1s specialize, it's likely that we come into a world where projects that are most suited for the underlying infrastructure will gravitate towards the same one. Right, and and you touched on it a little bit there, but why did you choose to build, uh, especially on top of Solana? So, you know, there's there's obviously uh, Ethereum maxis and bulls, and there's uh, there's a vibrant ecosystem on Solana. Solana has scaled massively, can, can do a lot of transactions very quickly. It's also experienced some outages. But as you weighed sort of the pros and cons of different blockchains, why did you settle on, on using Solana? Uh, it's two big reasons. The first one was as we looked into the space and looked into cross-chain infrastructure, uh, the, 
solution we felt was the strongest and had the best underlying tech was Wormhole, uh, just based on, I guess, its consensus mechanism and as well as uh, its path on decentralization was what we felt uh, much ahead of the space. And so I guess that was the first decision. And at that time, Wormhole was just on ETH and Solana. And kind of the second reason is since it looked like Solana was most adaptable towards financial kind of trading versus other L1s at that time, mostly for Ethereum scaling, it felt like uh, the growth of Solana would have the biggest pull for outside uh, adoption coming into the crypto space as a whole versus kind of the other L1s at the time were mostly taking crypto native things and making them faster. And so I guess that that those are the reasons why we decided to build on Solana. Right. And you you took a novel approach. Obviously, we've heard of bridge wrapped assets uh, and and uh, Vitalik Buterin has is, is written about how he thinks that bridge wrapped assets are problematic in a number of different ways. And you've created a novel solution where, you know, no more bridge wrap assets. Uh, you're sending and receiving native assets. Why is that important? And, and what's your view on sort of bridge wrapped assets and, and why you chose this route? Uh, yeah, certainly. I guess to address kind of Vitalik's point, it's basically, he's basically saying because on Ethereum, uh, when you do a transaction, everything happens in that transaction and it either happens or it doesn't. Uh, it basically, if you trade, let's say dollars ETH uh, to ETH, uh, either you lose your dollars and you get ETH or you that doesn't happen and you just hold on to your dollars. Now, this thing technically does not have the technical properties when going through any bridge mechanism. Uh, basically, because things happen on different chains, these don't happen in the same transaction. And there is some time in between. So technically, there is a possibility. Some, you could kind of have your USDC lost on ETH and not get it on, say, Solana. Now, the probability of this happening, if you wait 15 kind of block confirmations, is extremely small. Just to kind of give you a highlight of what I mean, uh, one block uh, reorgs are about a few hundred a day, two blocks are about two to three, and that just drops off exponentially uh, if you wait 15 blocks. In terms of other cross-chain train bridges and multi-chain liquidity protocols, how is, is SWIM's approach novel or how do you try to differentiate yourself from other solutions that are out there? Um, there's two biggest reasons for uh, why we've designed SWIM the way we've designed. Uh, basically, kind of high throughput and decentralization. Kind of in the mid to long term, uh, as many bridge solutions uh, coexist, ultimately we think that these are the two factors that will make or break a bridge solution. So when let's say billions of dollars want to move from chain A to chain B, uh, based on your design, uh, you know, bridges may or may not be designed to facilitate that, but the ones that will, 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 will be left standing. And, and decentralization kind of maybe speaks for itself. Uh, right. It's it's super unclear, uh, you know, uh, what the value is immediately, but uh, basically the security of the problem will probably keep uh, those bridge solutions standing. So as you talked about, the digital asset space, you know, is is maturing. I think a lot of people came on the mainstream radar starting in 2017. 
As you mentioned, DeFi has really only gained a lot of traction since about 2020. It's extremely young. We've seen hacks. We've seen sort of misinformation uh, based on a lack of understanding coming from regulators in Washington and things like that. How much do you think um, the infrastructure, the, the code that's been built up within the DeFi marketplace, uh, how much do you think trust has developed and, and how far does sort of DeFi have to go to both uh, you know, build secure systems, build trust in those systems, and also educate uh, regulators around the world about why DeFi isn't this dangerous wild west? Uh, yeah. Uh, hacks are quite an interesting thing, mostly because in DeFi, you, you kind of don't get the projection of uh, Web2 where there's kind of someone watching, making sure uh, bad things don't happen and having things in place to, to stop those. It's almost kind of uh, beautiful in the sense that the history of DeFi over the past few years, you've seen hack over hack over hack. But on top of that, you see kind of iterations and iterations over existing protocols uh, with all of these hacks in mind. And it's certainly grown a lot, uh, definitely during the, the big boom of 2020. And to top off on bridge solutions and why they've been getting hacked recently, um, mostly because uh, they're super complex and they're a big pot. As in, not uh, bridges are so new and they do so many different things, kind of on-chain A, on-chain B, and in between. There's just so much infrastructure. And even the people who are building bridges might not be able to uh, understand all of that right now. And it just right. creates so much surface area. And so kind of, they also hold a lot of TVL. But as, as these hacks happen, all the other bridges update, they're getting safer and safer. And it looks like there's been no slowdown in demand for people to move uh, coins across chains. Yeah, and it was amazing to see uh, the teams behind Wormhole, Jump Trading being a big one, others involved stepping up and making people whole that that suffered as a result of the hack and reinforcing trust uh, in the wormhole after after that hack. Uh, it was amazing to watch that. Um, you know, creating a decentralized storage uh, network and indexing network for uh, DeFi is a project that several different companies have taken on. You guys have partnered with Aleph. Um, as your partner on that front, why is creating these uh, these storage uh, systems and indexes so important as we're building out the DeFi ecosystem? Uh, mostly because, uh, especially for cross-chain interactions, uh, things don't happen in one transaction. So essentially, there's different states uh, when you go from chain A, kind of the stuff that happens in between, and then chain B. And so in order to manage a variety of states that your kind of cross-chain interaction could be in, it's really important to kind of get a good understanding of what has happened on the blockchain. And that, that's the biggest reason why we've partnered with Aleph, because they've built a great solution for that. Right. And what, what were some of the biggest challenges that you guys have run into as you're building, uh, building a multi-chain uh, AMM? And, and how have you worked around those problems? <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, many, many uh, problems just because <laughs> this area is so new. Uh, basically, kind of as I, as I just mentioned, there are many things that happen on chain A, things that happen in between, and things that happen on chain B. And because the space is so new, there's not really good infrastructure. Uh, basically, just to illustrate that point, 
did this thing happen on Solana? Maybe it did, but maybe the thing telling me if it happened uh, is just wrong. And so in order to kind of, all these problems happen when trying to go from chain to chain. And so it's basically the biggest innovation we've built for this is uh, our state machine. And right now the user kind of manages the state machine uh, between all of these states on the first chain in the middle and at the end, giving the user full custody of the funds. And then kind of we're working towards a system where trustlessly someone can crank this process for the user. Right. And you guys are about, correct me if I'm wrong, about two months since you launched uh, live. What's the growth been like um, and, and just general education and adoption around what you guys are building? Um, yeah, uh, it's kind of been it's kind of been amazing. I think when we first started building this uh, about a year ago, uh, no one multi-chain was still kind of a new thing. No one was really building solutions. And now kind of there's so many projects, kind of another bridge solution, more apps. It's super exciting that the need and the demand uh, to go across chains has just grown a ton. And we're super happy that the space is, is at this point right now. You know, I think like a lot of projects, you guys uh, have decided to introduce uh, a token uh, as, as part of the this ecosystem that you're building. Could you talk about how you guys are thinking about tokenomics, the utility of that token and how it works uh, within the solution that you guys are offering? Yeah, certainly. Uh, basically, we've taken uh, inspiration from protocols that we like. And so kind of like a curve-like uh, tokenomics combined with Sushi's fee. Uh, so basically what that means is just uh, token emissions to promote TVL uh, on our pool since the size of the TVL basically determines how good uh, the rate is uh, when you go cross chain. And then as well as like gauge voting and kind of uh, X Sushi model uh, so that uh, protocol participants can basically benefit from all the volume that's going through our system. I'm talking a little bit more uh, through security. So you guys talk a lot about how you have external security assessments that take place regularly. Uh, you have a significant bug bounty program, which is a staple of sort of DeFi uh, and a digital asset ecosystem. How effective or, you know, which of those is most effective in your eyes, you know, having a third party uh, centralized firm go through and do audits versus, um, you know, how well does, does a bug bounty type program work in terms of identifying vulnerabilities? Um, I think for security, it's our mindset towards it is just do everything. Um, right. And so we have kind of our audits. We do have our bug bounties. We do have internal systems that are monitoring uh, everything that's happening on SWIM and will alert us if there's anything suspicious. Uh, we've also kind of reorganized the way we roll out code in the sense that like no one can be alerted if there's a security uh, roll up that's about to happen. And so, uh, as well as kind of our own members actively thinking about ways to, to, to hack different bridge protocols. Uh, yeah, so in terms of security, it's uh, just do everything, uh, can never be too safe. Right. And uh, again, you guys are two months into launch. You have significant momentum. What is next uh, on the roadmap for SWIM uh, as you continue to scale and roll out different elements of your of your solution? Cool. Yeah. So right now, uh, kind of our alpha launch, we're launched on Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Solana. Uh, we should be having other chains ready to go maybe today. Uh, uh, 
uh, internally at least, probably testing uh, and hopefully out soon. And so the next chains kind of on ready to go are the EVM ones. So that's like Phantom, that's Polygon, and that's Avalanche. Uh, and likely ones that will come next will be Aurora, Near, and Polkadot. So kind of bringing a Amazing. whole bunch of ecosystems to, to swim. Super excited for that. That's that's what's next. And then kind of relayer uh, and integrations uh, after that. And then thinking even longer term, over the next, let's say, five to 10 years, as you look out in the future, in your mind, what role does Swim play? Well, first of all, what does the ecosystem look like? We're talking during a, a bit of a downdraft for crypto assets. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how private market valuations are affected uh, within the crypto space as some of these fast-growing startups burn through uh, capital, venture capital that they've raised. Um, how do you look at the ecosystem and what it's going to look like in five to 10 years? Do you think this is just a natural blip on the radar as a result of sort of macro conditions around interest rates and, and things of that nature? So what does the ecosystem look like in, in five to 10 years? And what is SWIM's role within that ecosystem in terms of how it facilitates sort of a multi-chain world? Yeah. So I guess ecosystem in a broader category, I think basically the macro events right now, Bitcoin just seems to be correlated with, with tech stocks. And that's the predominant narrative in the beta there is right. pretty just, high. It's just connected with the NASDAQ <laughs> at this point. It's like a risk asset. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's a little weird. And maybe it should do that in the short term, but doesn't seem like uh, maybe that's correct on the long term. Uh, in terms of uh, growth that's coming in, uh, I mean, tons of that's happening. Uh, builders, more and more builders are coming in, more and more kind of talent from traditional finance, traditional tech uh, flowing into the space. And in terms of invest investments, just so many funds have raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of capital and kind of with all this talent coming in, uh, hopefully those will be matched. And so I guess the longer term, it looks uh, pretty exciting. It looks like there's just a huge wave that's coming in. And and this little downturn in the market is, I guess, more short term than uh, it takes for if you're talking about long term things like deploying capital and, and ramping up talent. Yeah. And then, you know, as the ecosystem matures and, and we do have multiple successful chains that emerge, uh, long term, what role do you see Swim Protocol playing in sort of the facilitation of that multi-chain world? Uh, yeah, certainly. So um, I think Wormhole, maybe put it correctly, or, or somebody, uh, but basically the goal is to make everyone a Web3 user, not L1 users or uh, particular chain users. And, and right. just to highlight what that means is like right now, Based on our infrastructure, there's just so much underlying tech that even DeF DeFi natives have to think of a lot when just doing anything. They have to think about the blockchain. They have to think about which wallets. They have to think about which bridge solutions and, and how to use them. And all these things kind of are in kind of Swim's umbrella to streamline for the user. So basically right. making it so that if the things you want to do are like maybe you know, I want to trade on Solana because it's super fast. And then I want to sell my NFT on, on Ethereum because it's, it's, I need capital to do that trading. Hopefully right. Swim does that all for you. You can just go to OpenSea. It works. You can just open up Drift on Solana and it works because Swim has done all of that boilerplate underneath stuff for you. 
Yeah. And, you know, for me personally, uh, I've experienced, I, I like to experiment with new level two solutions that come out, whether it be through NFTs or other things. And I've certainly uh, been at the bleeding edge of some of that with, with level twos. And, and uh, it's certainly when I started in that space, it felt like early days and your, your money gets caught in the ether and you don't necessarily know where it's going to end up. Um, but, but thankfully it's all made its, its uh, way to the right place eventually with some headaches along the way. But you know, it's exciting to see sort of that interoperability re- really mature to the point where, like you said, people can operate within Web3 without even thinking about the fact they're in Web3. I think that's when we'll really arrive um, as an industry is that, you know, my my dad uh, can buy NFTs without getting a headache about how to operate <laughs> his wallet and move assets across chains and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you made an interesting point. And this was a lot of the commentary that we saw coming out of Crypto Bahamas as people wrote, you know, media outlets wrote articles about their takeaways from the event. And for them, it was sort of the quality of the people that were at that conference in terms of their backgrounds as well. You had people from coming from major banks. You had people coming from leading Web2 companies. Uh, you had people coming from traditional finance or, or retail or all kinds of different industries. And you're seeing some of the smartest people in those industries migrate into Web3 What's your observation in terms of how motivated people are from that sort of Web2 world? You came from sort of a finance background with a a tech educational background. You obviously applied a lot of that uh, within quantitative finance. But what are you seeing as the appetite for people, whether it's in finance or or tech Web2, to move into the digital asset crypto space? Uh, Yeah, it's huge. Uh, All the way down from kind of talent that that's flooding kind of resume pools right now to big companies, you know, hiring a bunch of uh, you know Web three developers and pushing out initiatives. Uh, the move seems seems evident, and and there's a huge gap that web people in Web three can fill in to make that move as easy as possible. You talked about all of the multi hundred million dollar and even billion dollar plus funds that have been raised. Uh, within Web3 crypto digital assets that still have yet to be deployed. Uh, But at the same time, you see valuations, you know, obviously uh, growing significantly within the space and people are looking for for areas to deploy capital. What areas within Web3 do you think are most uh, poised to explode in terms of their growth? And and what are areas that, that you think, you know, investment will help bring the industry forward? Interesting. Is it um, NFTs? Is it is it DeFi? You know, obviously you're a little biased uh, potentially toward DeFi, but where do you think the biggest sort of innovations and capital flows potentially could take place over the next couple of years with all that dry powder that exists? Certainly. Uh, I think maybe in a few months ago, uh, I think definitely the top of interest in terms of investments for Solana uh, and uh, Metaverse. Uh, now that that's kind of been six months in the past, it looks like a lot of investment is going into uh, different L1s. That's like kind of projects on AVAX, on NIR, and uh, whatever L1 is coming next on the horizon. Uh, and certainly a big, big pull into kind of bridge solutions as well. Uh, and that's that's kind of my best guess of where the money is going. And in terms of propelling us further, uh, I think the less uh, eye-popping numbers, uh, but a certainly a big amount of money is going to bridge 
basically traditional infrastructure to Web3 infrastructure, whether that's like KYC, uh, different paths, uh, different APIs that traditional banks can use to interact with 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 crypto as well as kind of uh, that prime brokerage that tr traditional trading firms are, are basically have infrastructure to trade around. Uh, but yeah, kind of propelling further, I guess there's all the like bridging stuff between traditional to crypto. There's all the bridging stuff within crypto. Uh, there's exciting stuff on the metaverse and and maybe maybe the, the future steers towards uh, a place that's not known yet, but I'm uh, excited to see that. that. That is often the case. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, geographic adoption and regulation around crypto, obviously you're in the DeFi space, which is uh, regulators in Washington are still getting their heads around how do we treat and regulate, regulate DeFi? The SEC just uh, hired 50 people in their enforcement unit to, to look into various things across Web3 uh, and digital assets. You know, China obviously has banned uh, the, the use of decentralized crypto in favor of trying to build out their central bank digital currency. You've seen a migration of people into a country like the United Arab Emirates, which is an area that we do our conference in Abu Dhabi and have been very familiar with sort of their uh, their their aha moment, their eureka moment around building out a a vibrant digital asset ecosystem there. But as you look around the world, uh, how are you evaluating things like regulation and growth, and and uh, are there areas of the world that you are particularly bullish on in terms of adoption of digital assets? Um, yeah, uh, I think there are a handful of cities that are extremely favorable. Uh, to crypto, uh, probably once we're hosting crypto events, and it's <laughs> that's, that's a telltale sign. You know, a lot of crypto conferences in Miami, a, a great one in the Bahamas, a lot of them in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, a couple in Singapore, but they're still trying to figure out exactly the way they're treating uh, digital assets. But yeah, you're right; it's probably a good telltale sign. Yeah, it's it's super exciting, uh, and and they're definitely trying to. Uh, make it nice for crypto companies to move there. Uh, so that's super cool. In terms of kind of adoption on uh, a separate layer, I mean, ultimately, you know, one use case of crypto is kind of banking. And so uh, for countries that could use uh, an improved banking system, there's certainly kind of onboarding. And I think we've already seen a lot of that. Uh, but yeah, overall, it seems like Pretty good. Uh, <laughs> uh, companies <laughs> aren't playing too much. <laughs> companies, you know, it, it sounds like if you want to grow and innovate, there will be somewhere, many places in the world for to promote that. So it seems pretty good. How do you respond to you know people who say, "Oh, DeFi"? You know, I've I've read about DeFi and how it operates, and it's a uh, it's an area of the marketplace rife for financial crime, fraud uh nefarious activity you know why do you think ultimately DeFi is not going to become a destination uh for that type of activity more so than the us dollar or cash or or anything that's been used in history but why do you uh how do you push back on that narrative um i think for anything that grows so fast uh even kind of web 2 that fast growth just promotes like something that's so new that regulation just hasn't caught up to and just creates a bunch of opportunities for things to happen. Now, you know, while a lot of those things have happened, the, re the more recent landscape is, is much different. 
you can basically kind of verify that by looking at all the past hacks and basically kind of all the hackers have a lot of trouble being able to convert that money uh, out uh, to, to, to spendable money, whether it's all exchanges blacklisting them, uh, whether it's something, their funds being frozen or just kind of sitting there because they realize they can't do anything with it. And in essence, you know, it's every, because it's on the blockchain, like every person who has access to the blockchain can go figure it out. And there are a lot of people doing that right now. It's almost more transparent than I guess the traditional fiat system. Right. And I asked you earlier about how you became enthusiastic about crypto. Uh, I didn't ask your views on sort of Bitcoin versus decentralized finance. We obviously have a lot of Bitcoin maxis who think that Bitcoin is the only asset that merits consideration because of its, uh, you know, tokenomics and and, uh, immutable properties and fixed supply and all that great stuff about Bitcoin. You have people that are Ethereum maxis or people that are less enthusiastic about Bitcoin and more enthusiastic about use cases for DeFi. Where do you fall on that spectrum in terms of how important do you see Bitcoin to the growth of the ecosystem? If Bitcoin falters, for example, do you think that we'll still see this explosion in Web3 and, and DeFi? Uh, Bitcoin holds a very important part, mostly because it is kind of built and the mechanisms behind it make it kind of the decentralized gold, I guess. Ethereum is a bit different since it's kind of like a decentralized supercomputer. And uh, a lot of the kind of Ethereum uh, killers, I don't want to use the word killer, but that's what crypto Twitter is calling them, uh, are basically different kinds of supercomputers that are decentralized. Um, so, I mean, Bitcoin is kind of, it's, it's, it's a much different spot than kind of all these other chains. And I do kind of see it as the decentralized gold, uh, not a maxi in any way. I just, uh, looking for just <laughs> the, the most smartest innovations and, and the most impo- impactful ones. Yeah, it'd be a tough. It'd be tough for a multi-chain liquidity provider to be a, a maxi, or or at least say it out <laughs> loud. So, not particularly surprised by that answer. But Troy Sue, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we want to thank Swim Protocol for for being a great partner down at Crypto Bahamas. We hope to have you guys next year. I think you know things move so quickly, but so slowly in Web three and crypto. Where uh, you guys have been live for two months and the explosion of growth has been amazing. Even DeFi has only really uh, started to become somewhat mainstream in the last two years. So it'd be interesting to watch your maturation over the next year uh, before we gather back down at the Bahamar in the Bahamas. But thank you. Great talking to you. And we hope to talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, uh, Troy. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Troy Sue from Swim Protocol. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. We're also at Crypto Bahamas. Uh, now that we have a new Twitter handle and a new event that we launched this year. Uh, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these salt talks. We love exposing people to very intelligent people like Troy who are building at the forefront of DeFi. Uh, but on behalf of the entire salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.